Uh, well, it's great to be here. I was here for 14 years. He always says 13. I was here for 14 long years. Um, you know, happiest years of our lives. We raised our kids here. Our older two children were four and five, I think, when we came uh, in, in the, the very end of uh, 1971. Church started in October. We finally got down in December. And uh, Phil and I met in college. We actually ran into each other on the campus of uh, Western Baptist College. We were the only two Pentecostals in this uh, very conservative, fundamentalist Baptist college. And uh, we just kind of hid here and there. But it was so great to have a companion. And uh, we became very close friends. We went through some major changes in our understanding of the Word of God in those years. It was traumatic. It caused us a lot of problems uh, with the folks we had grown up with. We came to understand that God is sovereign in salvation. And it was so revolutionary that God had actually chosen us before the foundation of the world to become holy and blameless before him in love, predestinating us unto adoption as sons. And those truths were so wonderful. And I remember that probably the thing that I remember most about those early years was hearing somebody teach the doctrines of grace without blushing, without fear, and to see it penetrate the hearts and lives of so many young people uh, that have still been shaped by it all these years. They, they were just wonderful years. Two of the things I remember that were really great was Phil's dad, L.J. Howard, uh, sang in the most unusual kind of way. He sang without, um, he sang without any reservation. He, he sang with everything he had. The, if you want to see what it looks like, go over to Steve Fernandez's church and watch him sing because that's where Steve learned to sing, was watching Phil's dad, and he sings just like him, except he doesn't carry a tune quite as well. <laughs> His timing is just a little bit off, but, but he sings with everything he has, and it was so wonderful. My son asked me one time, he was five years old, and he said, do you really think it's fair that he sings so loud? God can't hardly hear anybody else. <laughs> and uh, it did seem like that, actually. Uh, but what, what a lover of Christ he was. Um, what a wonderful man. Those were such great years. We had great fellowship. I remember a Tuesday morning Bible study, uh, Tuesday morning prayer meetings. Um, I would, we would experience the presence of Christ in such a powerful way in those prayer meetings. I was uh, selling used cars then, and I would uh, go to the prayer meeting. We'd pray for, I don't know, hour and a half. God would just overwhelm us. We'd be weeping and calling upon the name of the Lord, a group of guys, and go out to breakfast. And those were the days uh, when it was a, the greatest uh, spiritual struggle in my life after going to those prayer meetings. It was satanic attack, I got to tell you, because I felt like I'd been in heaven and I had to return to hell almost when I went back to work. But these, those were such wonderful times. My heart was so uh, transformed during those years. Phil has been an unusual friend. Uh, I never had a guy... I consider him to be my closest friend. He's my favorite preacher. Uh, and I, sometimes I don't even understand why. Uh, it, what it is about his preaching that has such impact. We had him up for a men's retreat this past year. And uh, I was just mystified at the, at the impact that he had as he taught the word to these men. I, I, could, I can't quite analyze it. And as I was studying for this message, it struck me in John chapter 7 exactly what was going on. It was just rivers of living water flowing out of him and affecting the lives of people. And that's the work of the Spirit. Um, God is so good. I, I'm, by the way, I want to say thank you to Bill Burrow. 
He's the first guy in this church who ever told me the truth when I come back over to visit. I've had all, so many people that knew me from way back then say, man, you haven't changed a bit. And Bill today said, you've changed so much I hardly recognize you. You're, all that snow on top of your head and all those things. Thank you so much for that honesty. I appreciate it. Um, I want you to turn with me to John chapter 7. Um, in John chapter 7, this is one of my favorite passages. I could say it was my favorite passage. All those, those change, don't they? There are periods of times in your life when the Word of God, certain parts of the Word of God has such deep impact upon your life and your heart because of what God's doing and the circumstances that you are in, the things that you are facing. And we are sure living in incredible times. And as we think about the next 14 months of what's going to happen uh, over these next 14 months, we're going to hear all kinds of stuff. We're going to hear all kinds of claims. We're going to hear all kinds of promises made by politicians. And sometimes we get confused. We don't know what to believe. We're living in a, in a period of time we don't know who to believe and what to believe. And uh, this was kind of the times that was going on in John chapter 7. This is towards the end of the ministry of Jesus Christ. He has been in, in Galilee, the northern part of Israel, for about six months. He had been, he left the Judea, the area around Jerusalem, because the leadership in Jerusalem were out to get him. He was a threat to them. He was a threat to them because he was a truth teller. He proclaimed the truth, and they felt greatly intimidated by it. And so they began to plot to kill him. In fact, you can see this here in John chapter 7, the very beginning of the, of the chapter. It says, after these things, Jesus was walking in Galilee in the northern part of Israel, for he was unwilling to walk in Judea because the Jews, and he's talking about the leadership, were seeking to kill him. Now the feast of the Jews, the feast of booths, was near. And therefore his brother said to him, leave here and go into Judea that you're, so that your disciples also may see your works which you are doing. For no one does anything in secret when he himself seeks to be known publicly. In other words, and it goes on to say they did not believe him. They did not believe in him. They thought he was trying to start a movement, and the best way to do that, if you really want to start a movement, is you have to be seen in public. So go down to the Feast of Tabernacles. Go down to Jerusalem and show yourself and do your miracles so that you will begin to have more followers. What's happened up to this point is that Jesus had left Judea, went up to Galilee, and for about six months did some miraculous, glorious things. Remember, he fed the 5,000. But the crowds began to turn against him. Why? Because he continued to tell the truth. And the last part of chapter 6, he says to them, because what they want is more bread to fill their bellies, and Jesus says, God has given you bread from heaven, and I am it. And you must eat my flesh and drink my blood in order to have eternal life. Now, that was quite shocking to them, and, they, and the crowds begin to turn against him, saying he had a demon. And so not only are the leaders against him, but the crowds. So not only the popularity, but also the power in Jerusalem, the political power in Jerusalem have turned against him. And so Jesus says, I'm not going <clears throat> to, the ta to the Feast of Tabernacles, the Feast of Booths. It is not my time. I'm not going there now. And so his brothers leave and go down to the, to the feast. And then Jesus ends up in the middle of the week going down to the Feast of Booths. 
Now, the thing that's interesting, I want to read to you down in verse 16. We're really going to look at verses 37 through 39, but I just want to show you a couple things. In verse 16, so Jesus answered them and said, My teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. Forty times in the Gospel of John, Jesus identifies himself as the one sent by the Father. Forty times he identifies the Father as the one who sent him into the world. And because he had this understanding of himself, that he had been sent by the Father, his agenda, his itinerary was clear. He had come because the Father had sent him. And so he says in verse 17, if anyone is willing to do his will, the Father's will, he will know of the teaching, whether it is of God or whether I speak from myself. He who speaks from himself seeks his own glory, but he who is seeking the glory of the one who sent him, he is true and there is no unrighteousness in him. So Jesus is teaching in a way that they don't like. And so the people begin to question. If you look down at verse 25, so some of the people of Jerusalem were saying, is this not the man whom they are seeking to kill? Look, he's speaking publicly, openly. And they're saying nothing to him. The rulers do not really believe that he is the Messiah, do they? Is that what's going on here? Is it all of a sudden they believe, the leadership now believes that he is the Messiah? But others said this in verse 27, however, we know where this man is from. But whenever the Messiah may come, no one knows where he is from. Why did they say that? Well, that was a tradition based upon Malachi 3 verse 1, and that he, he would appear suddenly in the temple. And they took it, they, they postulated that that meant that when he appeared suddenly, it meant that nobody knew who he was or where he was from. But they said, we know who you are and where you're from. And then notice Jesus' response to that. They think they know where he's from. Uh, but notice in verse 28, it says, Then Jesus cried out in the temple, teaching and saying, You both know me and know where I am from. If you have an ESV or some other translation, you have a question mark at the end of that statement. You know both me and where I am from? In other words, he's saying, Oh, you think you know who I am and where I am from? And then he explains, I have not come of myself. But he who sent me is true, whom you do not know. Now, if you want to get a bunch of Jewish leaders in the first century angry at you, you want to throw gasoline on fire, tell them that they don't know God. And that's exactly what Jesus does. He says, you do not know him. I know him because I am from him, and he sent me. I am sent from the Father, and you don't know him. Well, of course, that makes him quite angry. Why is Jesus doing this? If you look at verse 30, it says, So they were seeking to seize him. They are overflowing with anger. They seek to seize him, and no man laid his hand on him because his hour had not yet come. <laughs> his hour had not yet come. You see, they wanted to seize him, but they couldn't because his hour had not yet come. Now, throughout the Gospel of John, his hour is that period of time in which he's going to be handed over to them and he's going to be crucified, and the Father's going to judge him for our sins. But his hour had not yet come. It's so six months away. And so even though they wanted to seize him, they wanted to take him and destroy him, they could not. But why is Jesus doing this? Why is he saying these things? Is he just trying to stir up the crowds? 
Is he a rabble-rouser, a revolutionary? No, he is a truth-teller. But he's a truth-teller in a world of self-delusion where men follow after lies and fantasies, much like our world today. People living according to lies. Our Lord is the very epitome of truth. In fact, Paul has a little phrase in Ephesians chapter 4 that says, as the truth is in Jesus. The truth is in Jesus. If you want to know the truth, he is the source of truth. That's why it's, the Bible says he is the way, the truth, and the life. And the, and the life. Jesus is the truth. And so he tells the truth. He doesn't package truth to make it acceptable to people that are living according to lies. You know how it is when you're talking to somebody who's totally deceived about something. They're in, they're in nana land. They're believing some fantasy. And you, when you begin to tell them the truth, they get angry with you. And so you try to package the truth in a way that's not going to offend them. Jesus didn't do that. Jesus spoke kindly, but truthfully, and he told the truth. Now, people's reactions given to us in verse 31, look at this. But many of the crowd believed in him, and they were saying, when the Messiah comes, he will not perform more signs than those which this man has, will he? Of course not. He has fulfilled all the signs of Messiah. But the Pharisees heard the crowd muttering these things about him. In fact, they had actually put out the word, don't be talking about Jesus. And the people would mutter. They would say it under their breath because they were afraid of the leadership. The Pharisees heard what the, the crowd muttering these things about him, and the chief priests and the Pharisees sent officers to seize him. Amazing. Later in the text, it says the reason they didn't seize him is they come back to the leadership, and they say, where is he? Why didn't you arrest him? And their response was, never has a man spoken like this man. He was speaking the truth. He spoke truth. What boldness he has. But the nature of truth is to divide. It always does. In fact, in this very book, in chapter 1, it says, He came unto his own things, and his own people received him not. But as many as did receive him, to them he gave the right to become the children of God. There were those who rejected him and those who received him. And it's always that way. When the truth about Jesus is proclaimed, there are going to be those who believe and those who do not believe. And Jesus said in Luke that sometimes that splits whole families. He says a family of five can be split. Those, a father against his son, a mother against her daughter. Because the truth will divide based upon your response to that truth. It's a wonderful thing if you live in a family where everyone in the family knows Jesus Christ. What a glorious unity that is. But many of us are in families where there is division because of the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that's what is going on here with this crowd. And that's the nature of truth. When you believe it and obey it, it's going to create divisions at times. In verses 32 through 34, we see the boldness of Jesus. He announced what he's going to do. He gives his itinerary. It's an amazing thing. Um, Jesus obviously knows that the Father is protecting him, that he is resting in the sovereign protection of the one who sent him. You know, when you know you're sent, you can rest in the protection of a sovereign God. You can rest in the protection of a sovereign God. His hour had not yet come, and that's the reason Jesus was not afraid. He wasn't afraid that they were going to take him and ruin ruin God's plans because he rested in the sovereign protection of God. 
I bring you greetings today from a, a man that most of you don't know. His name is George Hurd, and he was uh, one of the young men who uh, came to Christ right before he came to Valley back in the early 70s. Uh, he had been a heroin addict, uh, and he, when he came, he was riding on a Harley uh, with his girlfriend on the back. He had become a Christian, was still a heroin addict, but Jesus delivered him. And uh, he went through great school of theology. He was in this church. He grew, came to maturity, went through great school, went through seminary, and went up and began to pastor a church and ran into some real problems within his family. Went through, his wife abandoned him. And so he got out of the ministry because he didn't feel he was qualified because of this divorce. And for years, he worked on a job. He was a pipe fitter. And he would work for three or four months, and then he would go to Central America and preach the gospel on his own dime. And he would go, and then he would come home, and he'd work three or four months, and then he'd go back and preach the gospel. Well, the whole time, what he didn't know was he had hepatitis C, and it was eating up his liver. But he continued to do the work of the gospel. He finally gave his library. I remember a few years ago, he gave his library to Grace School of Theology because he couldn't... He couldn't lug it around. He was going from here down to Central America to preach the gospel. And so he met with me, and he wanted to give us his library. And I was so impressed with his heart. He just wanted to serve Christ. Well, God ended up bringing a, a, a wonderful Christian woman into his life that he married, and they have five children. And they decided about 13, 14 years ago to go to Me Too, Colombia, which is a little bitty town way down in the southern end of Colombia that you have to only get there with a, in a small plane. He went down there because there were so many orphans, and they decided they were going to go there, set up a home, and take in orphans. And so they did, but then God began to work through him, and a church sprang up, literally. He didn't have some big plan. The only vision he had was uh, he saw Jesus standing at the Father's right hand. That was the vision. But God planted a church through him there that's thriving right now. But as this as this hepatitis C continued to eat up his body, his liver began to degenerate, and he went through some really horrible times, but for 13 years, he just continues to preach the gospel. He would come home, get a checkup, and they would say, if you'll stay in the United States, perhaps we can get you a liver transplant, but you have to promise you won't go back to Colombia. And he said, I've been sent to Colombia. I've got to go to Colombia. I'm going to go and preach until I die. And so he kept doing that, and he's been down there. And then here recently, this last few months, he had a motorcycle wreck. That's, they get around on a little motorcycle. He fell, mangled his leg terribly. But they couldn't do anything about it because of the hepatitis C. They couldn't do surgery. And so they said, we don't know what to do. And they actually flew him to another city, finally, where they had an x-ray machine. They didn't have an x-ray machine in Me Too, so they could see what was really going on. And they said, your leg's never going to heal right. It's going it's to heal very crooked, and you're going to have a hard time walking. So there he is in the hospital, and all of a sudden, he, he asks everybody to pray. People are praying for him. I mean, he's been doing this for 13 years. He's been dying for 13 years, but he just keeps on preaching, and God keeps saving people. And um, so they transport him to the city. He's there. They have no place to stay. They have no money. Uh, and he's gone out by faith. Not Nobody's made him any promises. He just went because, you know, uh, that's how... He thought he should do it. Trust in the provision of God. And God's provided for 13 years. His oldest daughter's getting married here in just a month. Well, he's down there at this, this city, and they got no place to go. 
he's in the hospital and they're telling him they can't do surgery because of this, his liver and the hepatitis C. And so finally, after a couple of days, here comes these three uh, hepatologists, I think they are, blood specialists who came. They heard about his case. They came from Bogota and they looked at his whole situation and they said, here's what we want to do. We want to give you a, a liver transplant and the government will pay for it. We have plenty of livers. There's plenty of livers in, in Colombia. And so we can do a liver transplant. But first of all, we have, to get, we have to cure you of this hepatitis C. And there are some new drugs that can do that. And so, okay, well, he didn't know what to think. Is this, is this God? Is God doing this? Is, is he opening a door here? And so uh, he is waiting around to see what was going to happen. But they had no place to stay. They get a phone call from a government official that was from their territory who owned a very beautiful, modern uh, home in this city where the hospital is. He had built it, but he never lived in it. He furnished it. Everything was there, but he never lived in it. The reason he never lived in it, he was in jail. <laughs> he was in prison. But guess what? He had heard the gospel through George's wife's witnessing to him in jail, and he had come to faith in Christ. And so he called him and he said, I want you guys to move into my house and I want you to use it any way you want. Stay as long as you need to. It's yours. And so they did. And they've been advancing this. They told him the leg, they couldn't do surgery because, uh, because of the hepatitis and the leg was going to be mangled. But miraculously, the leg began to heal normally. And now he's back in Me Too. His wife had a tumor they thought was cancer on her pituitary or thyroid, rather, and when they went back, they, the first scan showed it. They took a biopsy and all that. People prayed. They went back and looked, and it was just completely gone. Now, George has this crazy idea that God is doing all this because he thinks that since God sent him to me too, that God is the one who's protecting him. And so I talked to him yesterday. He's convinced. He's just convinced that this is the hand of God because God sent him there. Now, we can be presumptuous. I don't know if you heard that story about the guy that told J. Vernon McGee, I have such confidence in God that I believe until my time I can do anything and my life is not in danger. He said, I could walk out against a red light into commute traffic and I would not be killed until, unless it was my time. And McGee said, if you walk out against a light in Southern California commute traffic, it is your time. <laughs> and we can certainly be presumptuous. Remember, Jesus... Satan wanted him to cast himself down to prove that God would protect him. But the fact is, when God sends a man, when he sent Jesus Christ in the world, Jesus knew. When he sent the eternal Son of God into the world to become the incarnate Son of God so that we could become the adopted sons of God, the eternal Son of God, who has become incarnate, knew that God had sent him and that God would protect him. And so he boldly, tells the truth. He proclaims the truth with boldness because he understands that he is in the hands of Almighty God, his Father. And he says in verse 32, it says, the Pharisees heard the crowd muttering and all this. Therefore, Jesus said in verse 33, for a little while longer, I am with you. Then I go to be with him who sent me. Now, that, you know what that means, but they didn't. When he says, I'm going to go to be with him who sent me, you will seek me, and you will not find me, and where I am, you cannot come. 
it's kind of interesting that this is the exact opposite of what he says in John 14 to his disciples. I'm going to go and you're going to come because I'm there. <laughs> but he says, you cannot come where I'm going. Now, they don't know what he's talking about. The Jews then said to one another, where does this man intend to go that we will not find him? He's not intending to go to the dispersion. The Jews scattered around the Roman Empire, is he? Or to the Greeks. He's not going there to preach this, is he? Where is he going? And then in verse 36, what is the statement that he said, you will seek me and will not find me, and where I am you cannot come? All of that to say this. Verses 37 through 39 is Jesus' explanation of what he means by the fact that he's going to the one who sent him, and you cannot find him. You will not be able to find him. And this is what he says. Now I want to tell you the context in just a second. This is the Feast of Booths the Feast of Tabernacles. And in the midst of this festival, on the last day, the great day of the feast, the eighth day, Jesus shouts out to the multitude. It says, now on the last day, the great day of the feast, Jesus stood. That's not what a teacher did. A teacher sat. But he stood and he cried out saying, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture said, from his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. But this he spoke of the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive, for the Spirit was not yet given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. Let me tell you about the the Feast of Booze. The Feast of Booze, they would gather for a week-long, in fact, eight-day-long festival to commemorate the fact that God had been with them in their wilderness journeys. He had been with them. And he journeyed with them, and he provided for them. He provided manna from heaven, and he provided water. He provided water for them. And so part of the ceremony was that the priests, every day, the first seven days, every single day, that one of the chief priests would lead a procession to the Pool of Siloam. And guess what the Pool of Siloam means? John chapter 9 says the Pool of Siloam means the Pool of the One Sent. And they would go gather up water in a golden pitcher, and they would proceed back to the temple, and the priests would go in in the midst of worship and shouting, lots of noise, lots of praise, and would pour out water on the altar to remember and to celebrate the fact that God, while they were in the wilderness, God provided for their every need. He gave them water, two million people in a desert, and God provides water. And he did it in the most unusual way. He did it in a way that is astounding, the way that nobody would ever plan to provide water for two million people. Turn with me back to Exodus chapter 17, just a second. Exodus chapter 17. Here is is what the the Feast of Booze is commemorating. In, In Exodus chapter 17. Listen to these words. Then all the congregation of the sons of Israel journeyed by stages from the wilderness of sin according to the command of the Lord and camped at Rephidim. And get this, and there was no water for the people to drink. Thirst is the most powerful physical desire craving that you can possibly have. You can go without food. I know I don't look like it, but you can. You can go without food for a long time, but you cannot go without water. You must have water to have life. And so they are there, two million people, and there's no water for the people. 
Now notice what happens. Therefore the people quarreled with Moses and said, give us water that we may drink. They're quarreling with Moses because they have no water, and God promised to be with them, and yet there is no water. And Moses said to them, why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? Why do you put the Lord on trial? That's the meaning of this word test. And used in legal context, it's referring to a a trial, a court trial. He says, "Why why do you test the Lord? And then it says, but the people thirsted there for water, and they grumbled against Moses and said, why now have you brought us up from Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? So Moses cried out to the Lord, and here's what he says to the Lord. What shall I do to this people a little more, and they will stone me? Now stoning Moses meant, and here's what they're doing, they're condemning God for bringing them to this place and not supplying their need, and they want to inflict the penalty on Moses because he is God's man. And he says, look, God, they they have put you to the test and tried you, and they want to inflict the penalty on me. They want to stone me to death. And so here's what's happened. Here's what happens. Then the Lord says to Moses, pass before the people and take with you some of the elders of Israel. This constitutes the legal decision makers in the nation. They're going to have a trial. They're going to make a decision. And he says, with these elders and take in your hand your staff, which you struck the Nile and go. Now, when he struck the Nile, it was a It was a blow of judgment on the Nile. It was judgment against Egypt. This was an implement of judgment that had been used by Moses. And he says, behold, I will stand. God says, behold, I will stand, because actually God's on trial, not Moses. Moses is just doing what God told him to. And so their complaint, their murmuring is against God. And so God says, behold, I will stand before you on the rock at Horeb, I'm going to stand there. Here's God standing there. We know this is God the Son because the Bible tells us that every appearance of God before his people is the Son, the one who makes him known. And here is God the Son. We know this also because the New Testament in 1 Corinthians 10 says that this is God the Son. Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock, and you shall strike the rock. He couldn't strike the essence of God. He couldn't strike spirit. But he is to strike. He's to inflict a penalty upon God. God doesn't defend himself. He says, execute the penalty. They shall strike the rock, and water will come out of it that the people may drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel. He named the place Massah and Meribah, the place of judgment and quarreling, because of the quarrel of the sons of Israel and because they tested the Lord, saying, this is what their accusation was, notice. Not Moses is not an effective leader. Their accusation was, is the Lord among us or not? Is the Lord going to provide for us or not? And so God says, I want you to execute the penalty. And when he executes the penalty, when he strikes the rock, out of the rock comes water and the people drank. That's what they're commemorating at the tabernacle, at the Feast of Tabernacles. Every time this procession went from the pool of Siloam back to the temple, it was to commemorate the fact that God had provided water for his people in the wilderness, and he did it through the stone that was struck by Moses. 
Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 10 that this was the Lord Jesus Christ. This is the symbol of what Jesus is going to do in six months from the time that the events of John 7 are happening. He's going to be struck. Jesus Christ is not going to give a defense of himself before the court. He's going to stand before the court and be condemned in our place. He's not going to resist them executing judgment against him. He's like a a lamb led, led to slaughter. He's going to be executed in the place of his people so that out of his side flows blood and water. And that picture that John portrays later in the gospel is a picture of him knowing and understanding that the striking of the Son of God is the provision of eternal life for his people. And that's what they're commemorating. That's what they're shouting about. That's what they're quoting from the Hillel as they carry the water back. And one of those days, it was either the seventh or eighth day, they would walk, they would circle the altar seven times and the people would shout and sing, give thanks to the Lord. Give thanks to the Lord, give thanks to the Lord. But it didn't sound like that because there were 100,000 people in Jerusalem celebrating the Feast of Booths. And so they shout, give thanks to the Lord. He has provided for his people. And here they are wanting to arrest the rock. They went to the pool of the sent one, and he is the sent one. And they don't understand what he has said about where he is going and how they will not be able to find him because he is going to the cross and he's going to the tomb and he's going to be raised from the dead and he's going to ascend to the right hand of the Father. And notice what John does here. In chapter, in, in verse 39, John, in 95 AD, 60 years after these events took place, John gives a word of explanation. He's explaining what Jesus meant. He's explaining the meaning of what Jesus says, and he says he spoke this of the Spirit. Now, he's saying this 60 years later, but he was there when Jesus spoke the words. Six months before these events occurred, in fact, a little more than that, before the Spirit was poured out, he said he spoke this of the Spirit, whom those who believed in him, those who believed in Jesus, were to receive, for the Spirit was not yet given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. He's giving us a symbol of the, of the, not only the crucifixion of Jesus, not just that he's going to take the penalty for us, but of his life being poured out like water that we drink. And it is the Holy Spirit who does this. It is the Holy Spirit who takes the life of Jesus and implants it into the man and woman and, and child who believes in the Lord Jesus Christ. Today, every person sitting in this room has the Holy Spirit, every person in this room who has believed in the Lord Jesus Christ has the Spirit of the living God dwelling in them. And in John 17, Jesus says, you sent me, Father, now I'm sending them. You are a sent people. You may not be aware of it. That's why there's so much talk today about being missional, being on mission. It's because we are a sent people. The Son was sent into the world to rescue us, to save us, to redeem us, to give us life. And we have received the Spirit, and the Spirit is in us like a well of water, and out of our innermost being flows rivers of living water. But notice the, notice the verbs in, this, in this, these verses. Notice the verbs in, the, in verses 37 and 38. He says, 
the, the first verb is thirsty, anyone who thirsts. Anyone who's thirsty. The second is come. The third is drink. Thirst, come, drink. And then in verse 39, believe, be believing. And then the verb flow. That rivers of living water will flow out of you as you are believing Jesus. Now, this is obviously a glorious message to you if you are here and you do not have Jesus Christ in your life. You've never received him by faith. What he is promising you is he'll, he is promising you eternal life. When you receive Jesus Christ by faith, when you come to him, when you recognize your own thirst, your own spiritual thirst, your need for life, real life, eternal life, the life of Jesus Christ, and you come to him, he will implant life in you. And that life in you, in the power of the Spirit, will be like rivers of living water, not just feeding your thirst, but flowing out of you into the lives of others. Not only do you become a container of eternal life, you become a source of this life that flows out into the lives of others. This is the great evidence of having the Holy Spirit. The great evidence that the Spirit of God is dwelling in you is out of you will flow rivers of living water. That's the proof. It's not some language you can speak in. It is, does the rivers, are the rivers flowing? I got to tell you, being in the ministry is, is an exhausting, uh, I've been in the ministry for 30 years. The first five years was here at Valley in full-time ministry, and uh, I was young then, and, and it was easy because I just followed Phil around, and whenever he keeled over, then I got to preach and that kind of thing. But, but the last 25 years has been exhausting. You know, why, you know why? It's because too many times, instead of allowing the river to flow, instead, we try to produce something that only the Spirit of God can produce. Only the Spirit of God can produce. And the Holy Spirit can produce it through you. If you're thirsty, yesterday as I was thinking about this, I, I just became overwhelmed with this truth, overwhelmed with this reality, and I cried out to God, I want you to know, Father, I am so thirsty. I am so thirsty. And he says, come to me and drink. Be believing in me. That means be trusting in me. Let me pray. Father, you've brought us here as your people to worship you. We've sang these songs. Our hearts have been lifted up. Uh, we've prayed for each other. We've experienced your presence. We've heard your word. And oh God, we, are, are, we want to be targets of your grace. We want you, Father, to pour out your grace and abundance upon us so that we could experience what you said the Macedonians did in 2 Corinthians 8. This overflow of joy in God that gladly meets the needs of others. That's what we desire to experience. So we pray that you would cause the river to flow in each one of us. Multiply your work through us, we pray, Father. May Jesus be glorified, and we pray this in his name. Amen.